Would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 9? Last week we finished up our series in the book of Acts, and we're going to take a few weeks and look through the book of Psalms before we head into our next sermon series, which will begin in September on the book of James. And so we're taking a, a few, few weeks here to look at some Psalms and really uh, continue a series that I come to from time to time called A Life of Worship, and looking at the Psalms. Psalm 9, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in front of you, and the chairs in front of you, you can look on perhaps someone near you has one they can share, Psalm 9. Um, this past February, my wife and I went on a um, Valentine's date, and uh, I took her to a, a steakhouse, and uh, I had the best steak I've ever had in my life. I, I, had, I had heard about this place before, and uh, so we went, we were very excited, we went to this place, and we sat down, and we actually had like a, uh, it's one of those places you drive up, and they, and they have someone there to park your car. And so I was like, ooh, okay, very nice. We walk in, and um, I look around, and I notice that I am definitely out of my league. All the different people in there are, are way more, uh, they make a lot more money than me. They're, they're probably used to this kind of uh, treatment. But uh, you, know, you know that feeling. You walk in, you just feel very, very uh, out of place. I look, feel like I'm, I, I look at my clothes, I'm like, I definitely should have worn something nicer. Anyway, so we're, we're there, and we're enjoying ourselves. The waiter comes over, and he tells us, he says, uh, have you ever been here before? We said, no. He says, uh, well, let me, let me just tell you that the steak you're about to eat is going to be a very, inter- very wonderful experience, one you'll never forget. And, and he wasn't lying. He, he told me, he said, uh, that he told us all about the aging process of the steaks and how they uh, cook them a certain way. He said, now, let me warn you, when you eat the steak, when you cut into the steak, it will be quite hot. It should be around so many hundred degrees. And, and so you don't want to burn your mouth when you eat the, the inside. And most people aren't, aren't prepared for that. Just wanted to warn you. And so he goes through this whole process. We order, we, we have our meal come. And I, I will tell you, that was the best steak I've ever had in my life. In fact, it was so good. We talked about it the whole way home. We said, that was, that was unbelievable. How do they do that? We started planning how we were going to make our steaks like that. <laughs> I started trying to age steaks to try to get the same. It didn't work quite as well. I tried all kinds of things. And we, we, we decided that that was unbelievable. So, you know what? I came home. I came back um, home. And the next day I was in the office uh, with staff and everything. And I said, guys, you would not believe that I had the best steak I've ever had in my life last night. And we talked about it. And, and just last week we were talking with someone and we were talking about steakhouses. I said, you know, I have had the best steak ever. This thing stuck with me. It is still in my mind. I can still think about it. And now all of Rock Hill is going to have steak people today, like for lunch, everyone's going to go get steak. But, you know, there's a, there is a, before I had that steak, there was an awareness uh, of the greatness of what a beautiful steak, what a great steak would taste like. There was an awareness. I knew. I like a uh, good steak. I like that. But I wasn't sure what all the fuss was about. I thought there's no way that it's actually worth that much money that people pay to go to this place. I mean, they're just, cr- people are crazy um, to do that. But you know, the thing is, is that after having the steak, I now can anticipate that and I can actually make plans. And I start thinking to myself, not only is it reasonable, that's a really good deal for what we got. I mean, <laughs> when you consider like the value of how much I have thought about that meal since eating that meal. It is something that I will, I will look forward to doing again. Was that meal worth praising? Was it worth uh, talking about? And I say absolutely yes. It was right for me to praise this excellent meal because it was objectively excellent. It deserved every bit of praise it got. It was not something that I do every day. It was something that was unique and special 
Now, if I had that same response to a bowl of Campbell's chicken noodle soup that I might have after service tonight, you, you might look at me and say, Pastor Marshall, you've lost it. We knew you were close, but now it's over, like you've lost your mind. Why are you taking so many words to talk about Campbell's chicken noodle soup? Anybody can go to Walmart, get a can of condensed soup, and make for themselves something after the service. That's nothing special, but there is something special about that steak. There was something unique and special, something I could not even recreate at home. And, and I, I started thinking about this in light of, now I know this is a silly example, but when we, talk about, when we talk about worship, when we talk about ascribing worth to something, worship is speaking highly of someone or something, and it involves praise and expectation. And my question is this, what is really worth worshiping? What is worth pursuing? What is worth praising? Because Christians need to have a proper understanding of worship, because so many, so many Christians have a warped sense of what worship is all about. Uh, The Psalms, as we're looking at Psalm 9 today, is all about worship. The central theme of Psalms is proper God-honoring worship. And what kind of God deserves worship from us? Are we crazy to be worshiping God like we do? Have we, have we missed the boat? How Are we describing worth to something or someone who is not really worth it? Uh, why should we worship God? And, and most importantly, perhaps, how does God desire to be worshiped? What does God want out of us, his creatures, his creation? How should we worship him? And this cuts, this, this idea of worship cuts to the very heart of man's view of himself and his view of God. Because your view of yourself and your view of God will dictate how you worship the God who you worship. When man begins to think he has the power that belongs only to God, this becomes very evident. We think we can decide, and we think we can determine what is right and what is wrong. That is, it comes from a person who thinks that he is God and that God is not God, but he is God. He worships himself. We think of ourselves as the ultimate judge. We demand to be, retreated, to be treated with respect and dignity and honor and obedience. We, we demand things that only God truly has the right to. The second issue here is that Second issue related to worship is that many folks don't really think that God cares how we worship as long as we are worshiping Him. But God does care. God cares how we worship, and it matters to God how we approach Him. Today, we'll see in this passage what I'm calling worship with a whole heart, how God desires to be worshiped and how we should worship Him and praise Him and exalt Him and lift Him up and give Him the glory that's due His name. Father, we ask You that You would help us as we come before Your presence, that we would do so with humility And we thank you so much, Lord, for being a God who is worthy of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 9. Psalm 9 teaches us that our God, a couple things, a couple couple simple points today. First, God, He deserves to be praised. He deserves to be praised. Verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. We as believers in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we must commit ourselves to wholehearted praise. And I use that word very specifically, wholehearted, complete praise. Notice there's a decision to praise. If you have a pencil, you might circle all the I wills here. He says, I will praise you. I will tell of all your works. I will be glad. I will sing praise. This is a commitment of future giving a praise and honor and, and, and glory to God. It's saying, I will commit myself to praising God. I will make the decision now to praise God. And, and what kind of praise should we have? Look at the second half of each one of these decisions. 
It tells us the kind of praise, the kind of praise the psalmist would use to praise the Lord. He says, I will praise with my whole heart, with all of my inner being. The word in Hebrew for heart is the word lave, and it has the idea of your inner person, the, the center of your being. And here he says, with all of my inner self. With everything that's inside of me, I want to praise God. The heart of the person, your heart must be engaged if you're going to worship God. You cannot just do it with the externals. There is an external man, there's an internal man. The external man may look like he's praising God, but where is the internal heart of a man? He says, I praise you not just with the externals, not just with my voice, with my eyes, with my hands. I praise you with my heart. We're good at showing things with our hands and showing things with our actions. But here he says, I'm more concerned about the inner man. I must be fully engaged. Nothing's set aside. Nothing is set apart. <clears throat> There's no part of the inner person who is allowed to escape the responsibility to worship the Lord. You can't have parts of you that are not worshiping God. All of you, all of your heart, all of your inner desires, your inner man, your lust, your work life, your thoughts, your desires, your money-making skills, all these things are often put aside and not part of the whole heart of worship of God. But you as a person ought to worship God with everything that's in you, every part of you. Notice he says also, I will tell of your works. I will tell of all your, your marvelous works. The marvelous works there is a word describing the miracle, the miracles that God does. He says here that, um, that the miracles, the, the wonders of God, uh, God's wonders, God's miracles should be our testimony to other people. Worship involves telling people, maybe even telling God about what God has done. You need to be recounting what God has done. That's part of praise. Thirdly, he says we should, take, we should exult in, we should rejoice in and brag on God. Uh, we, we should speak highly of God and praise His name, praise His reputation and His character, the name of God. God's name, as you might know, the name of God means His character, His reputation, who He is. So we praise the Lord. We praise His name. And anyone who worships God has to know who God is in order to speak about God. Uh, you might, at this point, just have an anticipation of God. You might have heard of God but you've never experienced God, and so you can't with Psalm 30, 34, as we read this morning, taste and see the Lord is good. You, in your mind, you, you, you know about God, perhaps, but you don't know God. So it's very hard for you to worship God because you don't know who He is. You, you know about Him, but you don't know Him. We must commit to wholehearted praise, and we must commit, or we must recount His past faithfulness as part of this praise. Look at verse 3. He says, when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. The powerful God stands against the strong human and spiritual enemies, the one who loves the Lord. The enemies are going to turn back and they fall and perish, and God's powerful presence means they will fall and perish. What a powerful God we serve. We praise Him for being a powerful God. Think about what he does here, his past faithfulness, all of the, the, the conversation here he's talking about is, is in the past. They sh, they, they, my enemies turn back, they shall fall at your presence. This idea of looking back and seeing God's perfect, his perfect uh, faithfulness to us. A couple of things here. One is of, of Lamentations, um, Lamentations chapter 3. It says, through God's mercies or through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. God's, God's mercies are great to us. His compassions are great. God shows his faithfulness through his powerful presence. 
He shows his faithfulness through this presence that overwhelms even our enemies. He shows this through his perfect justice. Look at verse 4. If you read verse 4, he says this, "'You have maintained my right and my cause.'" You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. The perfect God maintains, upholds my judgment, my right. He, upholds my, he upholds my legal case, my cause. God acts as a perfect judge, and we give him praise for that, that he is the perfect judge judging in righteousness. This is the same kind of thing we hear from 1 Kings 8. When your people go out in a battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord towards the city which you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name, this is Solomon speaking, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Battle for them. Do their work for them. God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness means he upholds justice. He doesn't pervert justice. God is such a faithful God who shows perfect justice, a powerful presence, and he has a history of faithfulness. Look at verse 5. You have rebuked the nations, past tense. You have destroyed the wicked, past tense. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. God's righteousness is seen in his faithful way of dealing with powerful, wicked nations in the past. Look at this. He rebukes them. God in his strength rebukes the Gentile nations who are opposed to God. He destroys those who are wicked. He blots out their name. This picture of blotting out their name, what does that mean? Well, the idea is blotting out is a picture of being removed from history itself. He says, I, I'm going to remove them and their history and their culture and their posterity. I will destroy them because they are wicked. I will do righteous judgment. God, who's angry with the uh, nation of Israel on, uh, because their idolatry while Moses was on Mount Sinai, he, he, he told Moses in Deuteronomy 9, that he wanted to blot out the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 9, 14, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Now, of course, Moses uh, defends the nation before God and says, Lord, please do not do such a thing. And later in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God is giving laws. He's giving instructions for what families might be in danger of dying out because they have no children. He says in verse 20, chapter 25, verse 6, it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. He says, I don't want their, their name, their posterity to disappear. You see, the, the picture here of being blotted out, God says, I will, when I'm protecting Israel from, that I'm protecting them from their name being blotted out, he will actually turn on the enemies of God and blot out their names in his perfect, in his perfect justice. We must commit ourselves to wholehearted praise, and we do this by recounting his past faithfulness and trusting his judgments. Look at verse 6, because God is our perfect judge. That's a blank for you. God is our perfect judge. We see this because the wicked will perish, verse Six, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. You have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. The enemies will come to an end, it says, of perpetual ruin. Enemies will be destroyed. And look at the contrast in verse 7. But the Lord shall what? Endure forever. The contrast is large, huge. That the enemies of God, they'll be destroyed, they will be, they'll be downtrodden, but God, He will endure forever. Verse 7, He has prepared His throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for people in uprightness. God will literally forever sit. That's what that means, endure forever. He shall sit like one who sits on a throne or one who sits on a judgment seat. God shall be established forever. He shall sit forever. 
He will, he will not be rocked or shaken. The nations, they will oppose themselves against God. He says, but you have prepared your judgments. This is the same word used earlier in verse 4. Your throne is prepared for judgments. Look at verse 8. God has committed that he will judge the world righteously. He will administer judgment uprightly. God is a perfect judge. Isn't this good news? God judges righteously. He cannot be bribed. Our God cannot be bribed. Our God cannot be corrupted. He cannot be swayed by emotions. Our God is a God who judges righteously. And because He judges righteously, we can have confidence in Him. He deserves to be praised because He is a righteous judgment. You can trust His judgment because He is a perfect judge. You can trust Him because He is our perfect refuge. It's one thing for the judge to be an objective judge who sits on the throne and judges you. That's intimidating. That's scary to think there's a perfect righteous judge but there's also the, the warm and comforting thought that the God who judges is the God who offers himself as a refuge for the weak. And we are weak, and we, we need a refuge. We, need, we have a judge, and we have a refuge. Look at verse 9. The Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is a refuge. He is a rock for those who are pressed by the wicked. He is a champion of the weak. This is fascinating. In times of trouble, God himself provides that refuge. I want you to think about this, that God does not delegate protection. He is our protection. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says to the weak. God says, you come to me. I'm not going to let anyone else protect you because they are flawed. They are incapable. I myself will guard. I will be your refuge. Your refuge is a high place on a hill that was a place of safety. And this is a metaphorical use of a word. Describe God and His strength. He is such a strong rock that He can protect us. In verse 10, He says, those who know your name will put their trust in you, in you. while the name of the wicked, verse 5, will be blotted out. We can trust in the name of the Lord. We can sing His praise to Him because He is the Most High. Notice this, the name of God, the reputation of God, the character of God. In fact, among modern Hebrew people, they refer to God as Hashem or Hashem, which means the name. They don't refer to God's name. They don't call Him Jehovah. They don't call Him Yahweh because they're afraid of saying the name of God in an unrighteous way. They take the fourth commandment, or the fifth, I'm sorry, the, the, the commandment to, to uh, the third commandment. I'm trying to get this right. Commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. And they take it very seriously. And so they call the Lord Hashem, which is the name. And here he says the name. The name of the Lord will be a stand-in. It is a stand-in for the glory and majesty of God. And to know the name of the Lord is just to know God himself. He's not saying, do you know his name? As in, do you know what he's called? He says, do you know him? In fact, to trust in the Lord, we trust him because he is our rock. Isaiah 26 says, you will keep him in perfect peace, <coughs> whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, Yahweh, the Lord, is everlasting strength. It is an everlasting, and that word strength is the word rock. 
like a rock face on a cliff. It's a, it's a strong thing that protects. Those who seek God and those who search for God, verse 10, will not be forsaken by the Lord. If you want to be part of God's people, you need to seek Him. If you seek me, you will find me, God says. Thirdly, we see here that um, God is a perfect judge, He's a perfect refuge, and He brings justice. As a perfect judge, He brings perfect justice. Once again, we're called to worship and sing praise to God who dwells in Zion. Sing the praise to the Lord. He dwells in Zion, dwell, declares deeds among all the people. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble or the cry of the afflicted. He dwells in a special way in God's special city. Zion is a nickname for the city of David, the, the city of Jerusalem. God has an affinity for this city. God has a, a special place in His heart for Jerusalem. The new heavens and the new earth will actually find their governance and their location here. The new Jerusalem. I mean, you look at Revelation chapter 3, we have this prophecy. He who overcomes, he says in the letters, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. At the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 He says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw from the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more pain nor death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Former things have passed away. God will dwell in a special way in this city of Zion. Sing praise to the Lord who dwells in Zion. We declare His deeds. We declare what He has done among people. And verse 12 tells us that He avenges blood. He avenges the guilty or the innocent. He avenges those who are innocent. Uh, God, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God has told us that He will take care of the blood guiltiness of other people. Remember, he says, remember the humble victims of the wicked. I want you to notice as we wrap up this first point that, that I want you to think about a God who deserves to be praised. And this praise comes in many different forms. It, it comes in the form of committing ourselves to wholehearted praise. Commitment comes first. We must decide to praise. We must commit ourselves and our whole selves to worshiping the true God. We then recount God's faithfulness. This is when we sit around and we remember it's when we recall. Those of you who are good at, fam- my family calls it family history night. We sit around and we talk about stories. We watch old videos and we laugh at ourselves. But we also say, boy, wasn't that fun? Wasn't God good in that? And, and, and we should do that with God. We should say, God has been so good to me. God has been so kind to me. Have you gone back through your prayer journal, through your prayer notes, and seen, keep, no, keep track of what you pray for, because it's amazing how many times God answers prayer. And you know what he loves to he loves to be praised for answering prayer. So we rejoice when God answers prayer. We recount God's faithfulness and we trust. That's the final piece of the puzzle, trusting a God whose actions sometimes baffle us. Well, I'll be honest, sometimes you wonder, you say, God, what are you doing here? I don't understand this situation. It's hard to trust sometimes when you don't know. When you know, you can trust. Like the psalmist, who might not understand why certain people get away with doing things where other people face judgment. We need to trust God as our judge, our refuge, and our justice. 
But God's relationship is not just us giving praise back to Him. There's another element here. I want you to notice that He desires to be petitioned. That is, for us to pray to Him. He deserves to be praised, and He desires to be petitioned. The God whom we worship and exalt calls for us to come to Him in prayer and ask requests of Him. In fact, in the New Testament, we're called to come to the God of the universe in the precious name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Speaking to His disciples, Jesus said, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Coming to the Father in the name of Christ, in 1 John 5. This is the confidence we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. We're called to pray to God through Christ. And as we pray to God through Christ, what do we pray for? First, we should pray for mercy. Have mercy, he says, verse 13, on me, O Lord. Consider or see my trouble from those who hate me, who lift you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. Show mercy, Hanan, the prayer of the Lord to show kindness and to me specifically mercy. This is the same word where uh, Noah found grace or found mercy in the eyes of the Lord. He, he found these things. Show mercy, show kindness to me specifically. God, I'm asking you, you see me, Lord. See me and show mercy to me. It's a very personal prayer. Why should he ask for this? Because he says, I'm being attacked by other people. I want you to see the trouble that comes upon me. Consider this, this word, look upon. The psalmist has enemies who are pursuing him, who are bringing evil in his life, yet he knows he can rely on the Lord to relieve him of this distress. God's character is one of a person who shows mercy. He lifts me up, he says, from the gates of death. Look at verse 14. What's the purpose? What's the end point of this mercy? So I can tell other people. So we can sit around and rejoice in what God has done. I want to recount what God has done. This word, tell or recount, is an amazing Hebrew word, sofer. It's the word they use for accounting. And it's uh, the soferim where guys who actually wrote, uh, counted up the numbers of letters on a Hebrew page when they would write, when they would write the, God, the, the, the Old Testament, they would copy it by hand. They, they were counters. They were enumerators. And, and to sofer, to count it, is to, to list it. You know that song, Count Your Many Blessings, Name Them One by One? That's where this, kind of, that, that's where this thought comes from. This idea of recounting is not just telling about them in a broad sense, it's listing. One, two, three, four. I'm going to tell you the mercies of God. I'm going to tell you how God has been good to me. Where did He do this? He says He will do this to where it's appreciated. I may tell of your praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion. You know, some people aren't interested in God's good deeds. The pagans who opposed him are against him. He doesn't go to them at this point and preach to them. He goes to the gates of the daughter of Zion, to the entrance of the city where people pass by, and he rejoices the God who delivers and the God who rescues. I will rejoice in your salvation. It's given me cause to sing praise. It's a prayer for mercy. It's a prayer for justice, verse 15, because salvation and justice are linked. Lord, save me from the wicked and demonstrate your judgment against the wicked. The nations have sunk down into the pit which they have made, and the net in which they hid their foot is caught. The Lord knows of the judgment He executes. The wicked is ensnared in the work of His own hands. There are two images here. The first image, I should say, is the pit. 
The pagans sink down in a pit they have made. They, they, made a, they made a pit, a trap for someone else. This pit will actually be their own doing. It's this image of sinking down. It's this idea of hopelessly falling, but almost in slow motion, like you don't realize it's happening until you're stuck, almost like quicksand. And you're stuck in this pit, and they, there is a description here that can entrap, they can entrap people with, uh, I'm sorry, there's a deception here, a deception that they think they can entrap God's people without any consequences. They can escape, they think, and God's people will not. They can pick on God's people. It makes them feel strong. It's like shooting a fish in a barrel to them. It's like stealing candy from a baby. And, and in their eyes, even today, we see ports of believers and worshipers in the Lord abused by governments around our globe. But what does he say? These people have spread a net, and they've spread a pit, and they will fall into it. And these people have spread a net as well, this snare that they will try to catch other people, specifically the people of God. And those who make the net will find their own foot caught in the net. He's snared, it says, in the work of his own hands. As I was thinking about this passage, meditating on this week, no greater example in the book of the Bible than the villain Haman, who, 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 who hates the people of God and, and does a, 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 decides to try to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire, not knowing that Queen Esther herself is a Jew. Esther finds out about it from Mordecai, tells the king, reveals Haman's wicked plot, and Haman had built a gallows for Mordecai to die on. And how does Haman die? He dies on the very gallows he had made to kill Mordecai. This is God's justice. He takes wicked people and he puts them through. They fall for their own snares. Then there's an interesting call here for meditation. If you notice in your Bible, it says meditation, sila. Now, that's a fascinating word. We don't really know what it means specifically. We think it means to look up or to pause. And most scholars believe that when there's this word meditation, sila, what we're supposed to do is just stop for a moment and think about what we just read. And I think it's important for us to do that. We think about what we just read, that the Lord executes judgment, and the wicked will find themselves snared in that same judgment because our God is a righteous and just judge, a righteous God of justice. And we can be confident in that because the nations, those who set themselves against God, are not going to find success. You see that in verse 17? There's a final judgment. The wicked, it says, verse 17, shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Those who reject God will be directed into hell, a place of eternal torment, a place where the enemies of God go. God is a God of righteousness. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. But God, while punishing the wicked, will not forget the needy. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectations of the poor will not perish. Those who are not wealthy, they still have an audience with God. Lastly, he gives a prayer for righteous rule in verse 19 and 20. One more petition, a petition that resonates with me, He says in verse 19, Arise, O Lord, do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. He calls God to action. He says, Lord, rise up. It's like a a resting giant waiting to be roused so he stands and exacts judgment on those who dare touch the apple of his eye. But then he says this, do not let men prevail. It looks like in this world that men are prevailing. Everywhere you look, it looks like mankind, I mean, they have the institutions, they have the courts, they have the governments, they have the powerful positions. 
And this has been the status quo for much of human existence, that we look around us and we say, Lord, let not men prevail. Why, Lord, are you letting these men and women prevail, win, have success in their desire to overthrow the people of God? The appearance seems like the men are winning. Humanism reigns. Atheism grows. Those who deny the Lord seem to have more and more influence in the public sphere. But he says, let the nations be judged in your sight, hearkening back to God as the judge earlier, the psalmist says, Lord, demonstrate your judgment and put them in fear. The problem is they don't have any fear of God. He says, put them in fear. They need to fear someone beyond themselves. This last phrase is what caught my eye and really sent a chill down my spine. He said, let the nations know they are but men. There's a, I mentioned this at the beginning, one of the most powerful lines in this psalm, the last line, he says, too many leaders of this nation and other nations have made this mistake. They think that they are like God. They think they can determine what is right and what is wrong. I'm sorry, you don't determine what is right and what is wrong. God has said what is right and what is wrong. We acknowledge what is right and wrong. We discern what is right and wrong. We discover what is right and wrong. We believe what is right and wrong. We do not determine what is right and wrong. God has determined that. They think, many governments think their decisions are the ultimate standard, that they decide. They do not expect to be held accountable by anyone except, as we hear occasionally, by their voters maybe. They might think that. But the nations need to know, the people who oppose God need to know, the leaders of our country and of other countries need to know that you are just a man. You were born. You will live, and you will die, and you will stand before the God who judges you for your decisions. All of us in this room are but men. We do not have the right nor the privilege to declare what is true, that's God's domain. We submit to Him in fear. He is our judge. He is our justice. But we will answer for the decisions we make in our life. And, and, and there are many people who thumb their nose at God, who think that they, have, they are greater than God, who, who have bought into Satan's lie that you shall become like God. The nations need this reminder. We need this reminder. We will be born, we will live, we will die, and we will stand before God. Friend, where will you be when you stand before God? You are but a man. You will not live forever. One of the, one of the challenges, actually, of being a pastor, and I'll say this uh, as, as kindly as I can, one of the big challenges of being a pastor is that I'm around a lot of people who, at the end of their life, are, are passing from this life into the next, and that is hard. You see a lot of people who are, who are steps away from dying. Most people don't come into contact with death very much in our culture today. We, we, we don't like to think about it. We don't like to touch it. And very, very rarely we have someone in our close family, close to us, die. But let me tell you, there's nothing like a good reminder that we are here but a short time. We are but men. We are not here forever. We are, we are made by an eternal God, and He made us for him. And we can live forever in heaven or live forever in hell. There's one way or the other. We're going to live forever with God or we're going to die forever in hell. There's just there's two options. And, and friends, I, I beg of you, recognize the fact you are but a man. You do not have eternal, you, you do not have the, the privilege of God. That is being able to declare things true, be, being able to be above God, being able to judge. As we worship God, part of our worship, most of our worship falls into this category. We recognize he is God, and we are His creatures. He deserves praise. We praise Him. And so much of our wrong thinking about worship comes down to this mistake, that we have forgotten this order. 
We've forgotten where we are, which is why I'm going to have, at the very end here, I want to, I'm going to put it on the screen behind me, but Psalm 100 says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands, not just the Jews, everyone. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and we are not our own. That's what that phrase, we, not we ourselves, means. We do not belong to ourselves. We are His sheep, His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Therefore, enter into His gates with thanksgiving, into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures for all generations. To worship with a whole heart involves praise and prayer. It involves worship and trust. And when we worship the Lord, we are acknowledging that we are men and He is Lord. Would you worship the Lord as we bow in prayer? Would you acknowledge that He is the King? Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord, we come before You acknowledging that we are but men and You are a great God. You are the creator of us. You, you created us and love us, and You sent Your Son to die on the cross for our sins so we might have fellowship with You. And Lord, without You, we are nothing. You, you have created us you are God. We do not belong to ourselves, and you are great. And Lord, I pray we would have wholehearted worship, worship that is, uh, worship that trusts you, that petitions you, and worship that praises you, that exalts you. If there's someone here today who does not yet know you as Savior, who is fearful of where they might be for eternity if they were to die, Father, may this be the day where they turn to you for salvation and repentance in their heart, they recognize the change that needs to take place in their mind. They need to stop thinking of themselves as able to save and recognize that you alone are the Savior. Everything that needs to be done has been done through Christ on the cross. And that by believing in you and receiving this gift, they can have eternal life as a gift that is given to them freely, not as a, a bargain or a barter, something they have to earn, something that is given to them. Lord, what a blessed thing it is to have eternal life and to know you as Savior, to have the righteousness of Christ applied to our accounts. But today, Lord, we come to you as worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to align all of our heart, every bit of us, as worshipers of the one true God. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to give you a second here as I close. Before I close in prayer, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. Maybe today you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, or you're not sure if you were to die today whether you go to heaven or hell. And the Lord has, has given us in His Word, the Bible, everything we need to know about how we can go to heaven. He's told us, given us those instructions. And I wonder today, friend, do you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you know Him personally? It's not enough to say, I've always known God. It's not enough to grow up in a church or grow up in a family that loves God. You must know God yourself. And so today, on the back of that blue card, we have a spot I'd like for you to make a note or come talk to me afterwards and we're going to take up those blue cards in a second. If you, if you need to talk to somebody about salvation, today's the day, friend. Don't delay. Those of us who are here are not worshiping the Lord like we should. We have become self-infatuated. We have uh, neglected the worship of God, or we don't trust Him like we should. Today, let's bow our hearts before Him and acknowledge that He is the one who deserves our wholehearted praise, our wholehearted worship, and our wholehearted trust. Say, Lord, forgive me for my selfishness. Forgive me for my pride. Let me rest in You alone. Lord, we do thank you for the sweetness of this time where we can, after a service, or after a sermon, after a message has been preached, after the word has been read, 
We can reflect on our lives and align ourselves with your truth. May we, Lord, live in obedience to you, knowing that the gift of eternal life is through Jesus Christ. And this confidence we can have is through you alone. Bless now the remainder of our service in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a closing hymn, number 28, How Great Thou Art. We'll sing a praise of worship to the Lord.